Chapter 30 of The Frozen Pirate This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Middleton The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell Our Progress to the Channel When I started to relate my adventure, I never designed to write an account of the journey home at large. On the contrary, I foresaw that, by the time I had arrived at this part, you would have had enough of the sea. Let me now then be as brief as possible. The melting of the ice and the slowly increasing power of the sun were inexpressibly consoling to me, who had had so much of the cold that I do protest if Elysium were bleak, no matter how radiant, and the abode of the fiends as hot as it is pictured. I would choose to turn my back upon the angels. I cannot say, however, that the schooner was properly thawed until we were hard upon the parallels of the Falkland Islands. She then showed her timbers naked to the sun, and exposed a brown solid deck, rendered ugly by several dark patches, which, scrape as we might, we could not obliterate. We struck the guns into the hold for the better ballasting of the vessel, got studding sail booms aloft, overhauled her suits of canvas, and found a great square sail which, which proved of inestimable importance in light winds and in running. After the ice was wholly melted out of her frame, she made a little water, yet not so much but that half an hour's spell at the pump twice a day easily freed her. But curiously enough, at the end of a fortnight, she became tight again, which I attribute to the swelling of her timbers. We were a slender company, but we managed extraordinarily well. The men were wonderfully content. I never heard so much as a murmur escape from one of them. They never exceeded their rations, nor asked for a drop more of liquor than we had agreed among us should be served out. But as I had anticipated, our security lay in our slenderness. We were too few for disaffection. The Negroes were as simple as children. Wilkinson looked to find his account in a happy arrival, and if I was not, strictly speaking, their captain, I was their navigator, without whom their case would have been as perilous as mine was on the ice. Outside the natural dangers of the sea, we had but one anxiety, and that concerned our being chased and taken. This fear was heartily shared by my companions, to whom I also represented that it must be our business to give even the ships of our country a wide berth. For though I had long since flung all the compromising bunting overboard, and destroyed all the papers I could come across, which, being written in a language I was ignorant of, might, for all I knew, contain some damning information, a British ship would be sure to board us, and I should have to tell the truth or take the risks of prevaricating. If I told the truth, then I should have to admit that the lading of the vessel was piratical plunder, and though I knew not how the law stood with regard to booty, rescued from certain destruction after the lapse of hard upon half a century, yet it was a hundred to one that the whole would be claimed in the king's name, under a talk of restitution, which signified that we should never hear more of it. On the other hand, prevarication would not fail to excite suspicion, and on our not being able to satisfactorily account for our possession of the ship, and what was in her, it might end in our actually being seized as pirates, and perhaps executed. 
The reasoning went very well with the men and filled them with such anxiety that they were forever on the lookout for a sail. But as you may guess, my own solicitude sank very much deeper. For supposing the schooner to be rummaged by an English crew, it was as certain as that my hand was affixed to my arm that the chests of treasure would be transshipped and lost to me by the law's trickery. Now, till we were to the north of the equator, we sighted nothing. No, in all those days, not a single sail ever hove into view to break the melancholy continuity of the sea line. But between the parallels of 12 degrees and 22 degrees north, we met with no less than eight ships, the nearest within a league. We watched them as cats watch mice, making a point to bear away if they were going our road or if they were coming towards us to shift our helm, but never very markedly, so as to let them pass us at the widest possible distance. Some of them showed a color, but we never answered their signals. That they were all harmless traitors, I will not affirm, but none of them offered to chase us. Yet could I have been sure of a ship, I should have been glad to speak. My longitude was little more than guesswork, my latitude not very certain and my compass was out. However, I supported my own and the spirits of my little company by telling them of the early navigators, how Columbus, Candish, Drake, Schouten, and other heroic marine worthies of distant times had navigated the globe, discovered new worlds, penetrated into the most secret solitudes of the deep without any notion of longitude and with no better instruments to take the sun's height than the forestaff and the astrolabe. We were better off than they, and I had not the least doubt, I told them, of bringing the old schooner to a safe berth off Deal or Gravesend. But it happened that we were chased, when on the polar verge of the northeast trade wind, it was blowing brisk, the sea breaking in snow upon the weather bow, the sky overcast with clouds, and the schooner washing through it under a single reefed mainsail and whole topsail. It was noon. I was taking an observation when Pitt at the tiller sang out, Sail ho! And looking, I spied the swelling cloud-like canvas of a vessel on a line with our starboard cathead. I told Pitt to let the schooner fall off three points, and with slackened sheets, the old Boca del Dragon hummed through it brilliantly, flinging the foam as far aft as the gangway. The strange sail rose rapidly, and the lifting of her hull discovered her to be a line of battleship. We held on as we were, hoping to escape her notice, but whether she did not like our appearance, or that there was something in the figure we cut that excited her curiosity, she, on a sudden, put her helm up and steered a true course for us. At the first sight of her, I had called Wilkinson and Cromwell on deck, and now I cried out, Lads, you see, she's after us. If she catches us, our dream of dollars is over. Lively now, boys, and give her all she can stagger under. And what she can't carry, she must drag. And we sprang to make sail, briskly as apes, and everyone working with two-man power. I knew the old Boca's best point. It was with the wind a point abaft the beam. We put her to that, got the great square sail on her, shook out all reefs, and gave all she had to the wind. The wake roared away from her like a white torrent that flies from the foot of a foaming cataract. She had the pirate's instincts, and being put to her trumps was nimble. God, 
how she did swing through it. Never had I driven the aged bucket before like this, and I understood that speed at sea is not irreconcilable with odd bodies. But the great ship to windward hung steady, a cloud of bland and swelling cloths. When we had set the studding sail, we had nothing more to fly with, and so we stood looking. She slapped six shots at us, one after another, as a haughty hint to us to stop. But we meant to escape, and at last we did, outsailing her by thirteen inches to her foot. One foot to her twelve. Though she stuck to our skirts the whole afternoon and kept us in an agony of anxiety. The sun was setting when she abandoned us. She was then some five or six miles distant on our weather quarter. What her nation was I did not know, but Wilkinson reckoned her French when she gave us up. We rushed steadily along the same course into the darkness of the night, and then shortening sail, brought the schooner to the wind again, after which we drank to the frisky old jade in an honestly earned bowl. It was on the 5th of December that we sighted the Scilly Islands. I guessed what that land was, but so vague had been my navigation that I durst not be sure, until spying a smack with her nets over, I steered for her and got the information I needed from her people. They answered us with an air of fear, and in truth the fellows had reason, for, besides the singular appearance of the ship, the four of us were apparelled in odds and ends of the antique clothes, and I have little doubt they considered us lunatics of another country, who would run away with a ship belonging to parts where the tastes and fashions were behind the age. Now, as you may suppose, by this time I had settled my plans, and as we sailed up channel, I unfolded them to my companions. I pointed out that before we entered the river, it would be necessary to discharge our lading into some little vessel that would smuggle the booty ashore for us. The figure the schooner made was so peculiar, she would inevitably attract attention. She would instantly be boarded in the Thames on our coming to anchor, and if I told the truth, she would be seized as a pirate and ourselves dismissed with a small reward and perhaps with nothing. My scheme, said I, is this. I have a relative in London to whom I shall communicate the news of my arrival and tell him my story. You, Wilkinson, must be the bearer of this letter. He is a shrewd, active man, and I will leave it to him to engage the help we want. There is no lack of the right kind of serviceable men at deal, and if they are promised a substantial interest in smuggling our lading ashore, they will run the goods successfully, do not fear. As there is sure to be a man of war stationed in the Downs, we must keep clear of that anchorage. I will land you at Leed, whence you will make your way to Dover and thence to London. Cromwell and Pitt will return and help me to keep cruising. My letter to my relative will tell him where to seek me, and I shall know his boat by her flying a jack. When we have discharged our lading, we will sail to the Thames, and then let who will come aboard, for we shall have a clean hold. This, continued I, is the best scheme I can devise, the risk of smuggling attendant, to be sure, but against those risks we have to put the certainty of our forfeiting our just claims to the property if we carry the schooner to the Thames. Even suppose, when there, that we should not be immediately visited, and so be provided with an opportunity to land our stuff, whom have we to trust? The Thames abounds with river thieves, with lumpers, scuffle-hunters, mudlarks, gluttmen, rogues of all sorts, to hire whom would mean to bribe them with the value of half the lading, and to risk their stealing the other half. 
but this is the lesser difficulty. The main one lies in this. There are some 1,600 men employed in the London Custom House, most of whom are on river duty as watchmen. Thirty of these people are clapped aboard an East Indiaman, five or six on West India ships, and a like proportion in other vessels. So strange a craft as ours would be visited, depend on it, and smartly, too. Do you see the danger, lads? What do you say, then, to my scheme? The Negroes immediately answered that they left it to me. I knew best. They would be satisfied with whatever I did. Wilkinson mused a while and then said, Smuggling was risky work. How would it be if we represented that we had found the schooner washing about with nobody aboard? The tale wouldn't be credited, said I. The age of the vessel would tell against such a story. Even if you removed all other evidence by throwing the clothes and small arms overboard and whatever else might go to prove that the schooner must have been floating about, abandoned, since the year 1750. Mustn't lose these clothes, massa, on no account, cried Pitt. Well, sir, says Wilkinson, after another spell of reflection, I reckon you're right. If so be the law would seize the vessel, and goods on the grounds that she had been a pirate, and all that's in her was plunder, why, then certainly I don't see nothing else but to make a smuggling job of it, as you say, sir. This being settled, Wilkinson's concurrence being rendered the easier by my telling him that providing the lading was safely run, I would adhere to my undertaking, to give them six hundred and sixty pounds each for their share. I went below and spent half an hour over a letter to Mr. Jeremiah Mason. There was no ink, but I found a pencil, and for paper I used the fly-leaves of the books in my cabin. I opened with a sketch of my adventures, and then went on to relate that the Boca was a rich ship, that, as she had been a pirate, I risked her seizure by carrying her to London, that I stood grievously in need of his counsel and help, and begged him not to lose a moment in returning with the messenger to deal, and there hiring a boat and coming to me, whom he would find cruising off Beachy Head. That I might know his boat, I bade him fly a jack a little below the masthead. As for the Boca del Dragon, I added, Wilkinson would recognize her if she were in the middle of a thousand sail, and indeed a farmer's boy would be able to distinguish her for her uncommon oddness of figure. I was satisfied to underscore the words, a rich ship, quite certain his imagination would be sufficiently fired by the expression. At anything further, I durst not hint, as the letter would be open for Wilkinson to read. When I had finished, I took a lantern and the keys of the chest, and went very secretly and expeditiously to the run, and removing the layers of small arms from the top of the case that held the money, I picked out some English pieces, quickly returned the small arms, locked the chest, and returned. All this time we were running up channel before a fresh westerly wind. It was true December weather, very raw and the horizon thick, but I knew my road well, and whilst the loom of the land showed, I desired nothing better than this thickness. But weary sailing delayed us, and it was not till ten o'clock on the night of the seventh that we hove the schooner to off the shingly beach of lead within sound of the wash of the sea upon it. The bay sheltered us. We got the boat over. I gave Wilkinson the letter and ten guineas, bidding him keep them hidden and to use them cautiously with the silver change he would receive for they were all guineas of the first George, and might excite comment if he, a poor sailor, ill-clad, should pull them out and exhibit them. 
Happily, in the hurry of the time, he did not think to ask me how I had come by them. He thrust them into his pocket, shook my hand, and dropped into the boat, and the negroes immediately rowed him ashore. I stood holding a lantern upon the rail to serve them as a guide, waiting for the boat to return, and never breathed more freely in my life than when I heard the sound of oars. The two negroes came alongside, and clapping the tackles onto the boat, we hoisted her with the capstan, and then under very small canvas, stood out to sea again. End of chapter 30